Seattle area healthcare workers bore the initial brunt of the COVID-19 epidemic in the United States. They faced a range of challenges, including changing and conflicting guidance and uncertainty about the future. Behind all these challenges, though, has been a fundamental tension. How do we effectively care for patients with COVID-19 while protecting ourselves, our other patients, and our communities from further viral spread? I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lisa Rosenbaum, a national correspondent for the journal. Dr. Rosenbaum has written a perspective article about the early experiences of healthcare workers in Washington State and has spoken with clinicians across the United States and internationally about the pandemic. Dr. Rosenbaum, when you spoke with healthcare workers in Seattle in March, what were the first challenges they talked about in being in the hospital caring for patients during the pandemic? So there were lots of challenges. I think the challenge that everybody expressed was the uncertainty. It's uncertainty about what's coming, uncertainty about how the disease works, uncertainty about how to protect themselves and others, and a lot of conflicting guidance about how to sort of manage some of that uncertainty. I think that there were differences between the hospital and the outpatient practices. I spoke to a family medicine doctor there, Megan Wright, who sort of described the challenges week by week. And so at first, the big challenge was that they just didn't have any way to test people. So obviously people were coming in, starting to come in concerned because they had COVID symptoms, but then they were just simply not able to get any tests done, which was incredibly frustrating and time-consuming. And then I think The next wave, the challenge had a lot to do with conflicting guidance. So it's the same thing on some level that we're still seeing where you have so many different bodies um, issuing advice. So you have CDC, you have your state governments, federal governments, the Department of Public Health, the hospital system itself. Within each hospital system, there are divisions or different hospitals. And so I think that was a huge challenge in terms of knowing how to test, how to conduct outpatient visits, things like that. And then I think what became challenging was the reality of sort of the physicality of it. So all these hospitals now have gotten used to this, but sort of creating an area where you just treat COVID patients, how do you manage people with other health issues that are coming to seek regular care? And that's an issue both in the outpatient setting and then within the hospital too. I think for the hospital itself, there was a lot of fear around exposure. And that was the theme that I heard again and again. And it was becoming clear that in China, that when they sort of extended the amount of PPE for the healthcare workers, they dramatically reduced the infection rate among healthcare workers. And so there was a lot of conflicting guidance early on about how to best protect healthcare workers. And it wasn't entirely clear also whether there was going to be adequate PPE. And in fact, in a lot of places, there wasn't. So I think that that was really challenging for people at the beginning. You write in your article that one issue that clinicians are now facing is how to give patients a good death. How have healthcare workers approached that challenge? And what do you think are going to be the long-term effects of what are currently restrictive visitation policies on patients' family members and on the clinicians themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think of all the issues that I've written about, this is the one that seems to persist in terms of causing moral distress for the clinicians and for the families. What's described to me is just that the hospital is 
a completely different place without visitors. And I think as a doctor, we didn't realize before just how much we interact with families and how much we depend on families when we have conversations about the course of illness and obviously end of life conversations. And we also rely on family a lot to tell us who the patient is, what the patient would want, especially when the patient is intubated and sedated. So I think that that has been an issue that continues and doesn't have any clear end because it's not at all clear when the hospitals are going to start to feel safe feeling about letting visitors in. I think that people have obviously gotten creative in terms of how to deal with this. So a lot of people now, and I heard this in Seattle too, they were using, trying to get every ICU patient who was awake at least an iPad so that the person could communicate with his or her family. I know a lot of people, at least at the Brigham where I work, are doing a lot of FaceTime. But even that's complicated because you then have this object that is potentially contaminated that you're passing from one person to the next and taking out of the room. So it's not without challenges and it doesn't compare to sort of the physical presence of a loved one that everybody wants. I think that some hospitals now are making exceptions. So they'll let one family member come in and stay at the bedside for an hour. But there does seem to be an arbitrariness to that as well. So I had a story, for instance, like about somebody dying and, and the son was allowed to come, but not the daughter because only one person was allowed. So you start to hear stories like that and you wonder sort of what is the basis for the rules if we're going to make an exception? Where do the exceptions end? And, and are we doing this as humanely as possible? And I don't know what the answer is because the infection risk remains so real. So I think that as we move forward, I think this sort of constant reassessment of, of the visitor policy and the trade-offs inherent in that policy is going to be necessary. And I don't know where we're going to fall out on that. You asked me if we figured out how to give people a good and I think that the answer still is no. I think that people are doing the best they can, but I don't think that the, the two aspects of this, first of all, that the disease itself in terms of how people die is so horrible for people. I mean, especially those who have these prolonged intubations that require proning and heavy sedation. But I think that there's just no substitute for having the people you love around you when you die. Obviously, sometimes the patient doesn't get to even perceive that, but but for the family and the loved ones and the sense that you've been able to say goodbye, I just don't think that there's a substitute for that. Looking at hospital staff, what kinds of support are hospitals providing to their staff now, and what more do you think they could be doing? You know, I think this is really hard. I think that it's sort of like any emotional issue, (laughs) kind of like burnout itself. Where when you try to sort of have a massive organizational response to a problem that really varies between individuals and requires something more than sort of a token email every day that says, we care about your well-being. I mean, those sorts of things, I mean, they're a gesture of caring, but I think they're not always well-received because they feel pretty superficial. I can only see for my hospital where I really feel like they've done an incredible job. And they've done an incredible job because they've been extremely transparent. 
So it's not really about sort of touchy-feely, we care about you. It's about this is what's happening. This is where you can get help. This is how many people have been infected. This is what we're doing to protect you. And I think that that actually is so effective in providing solace, much more than sort of acknowledging that people are distressed without really being able to do anything about it. Because the bottom line is right now, people are seeing horrible things that they've never seen before. They're being asked to do things that they've never had to do. They're working harder. Many people around the world are having to work in a clinical capacity that they've never had to do. And for many people, it's like war. And so I think that to the extent that leadership can communicate clearly just the facts and also be very candid about what we don't know, I think that's probably the most effective thing that we can do for people's well-being. But I do think and I hope that things quiet down. There's going to be a lot of emotional fallout, and I'm not sure how we as a profession are going to address that, but it's certainly going to need to be addressed. And I don't know if that's people are going to need a lot of individual counseling or group debriefing, but I think it's going to have to extend far beyond sort of the recognition that it's happening to real intervention. You've also written about how patients with conditions other than COVID-19 are faring during the pandemic. Which patients have been most affected and what kinds of long-term consequences are you concerned about for them? Well, everyone's affected. I mean, anyone who gets routine primary care is affected, even if it just means they see their physician on the telemedicine visit and stuff. But so my bias obviously is toward cardiology. So I pay a lot of attention to the fact that we're seeing a lot um, fewer presentations with acute myocardial infarction. And that has been now documented in various publications. It's a dramatic drop in those presenting with MI. And there's no reason anyone can come up with that makes biological sense that people actually have fewer MI. So most of us think that people are just scared to go to the hospital. We're seeing some more drop in presentations for stroke. So my biggest concern is that People are having emergency medical conditions that we can clearly treat, and they're not coming to the hospital. And so I'm also seeing, and this is just anecdotal on Twitter, but starting to see mechanical complications of myocardial infarction, again, because people are not being treated. So that's what I'm worried about most right now, just because it seems like a problem we should be able to solve. Namely, we should be able to tell people that we're here to care for you that you should not feel too scared to go to the hospital, and we obviously have treatments for these diseases. And I think just as people are saying it doesn't make any difference if you open up the economy, the public is going to speak for itself, meaning people won't go to restaurants if they're open, if they're scared. And I think the same is true for emergent medical conditions. So again, I think we're going to need to have a big push in the coming months to say, The hospital is still a safe place for you. We're able to really cordon off people into COVID units, and the risk of exposure is low, if that's true. We don't want to also give mixed messages to people. So that's what I worry about. I think that patients with cancer, there are a lot of challenges around changes in treatment protocols, delays in surgery, but I think that a lot of oncologists I spoke to as well as the patients felt like they were able to come up with either alternative treatment approaches 
or they were doing the surgeries that were deemed necessary. I think a whole other issue is going to be a lag in diagnosis because we're not doing any screening right now. We're not doing colonoscopies. We're not doing mammography. So the consequences of that will be something that we'll have to sort of understand empirically, and I don't know what that is yet. And I think that another sort of thing that we're just starting to talk about that's going to be a huge deal is the financial fallout of all of these closures. I mean, so lots of hospitals and physicians' offices, the primary source of revenue is procedural. So canceling all elective surgeries, canceling all elective PCI, canceling all these bowel surgeries. I spoke with my best friend over the weekend who's a dermatologist. She has her own practice, and she's doing urgent intervention. But again, they're not doing any procedures right now. So I think hospitals are losing a ton of money, and so are individual practices. And that's going to be something that we're going to be dealing with for months, if not years to come. And it's not clear to me how many are going to survive that. So thinking about the changes that we're seeing, finally, do you think some of the changes to workflows, other processes that have been made in response to COVID-19 are going to endure after the pandemic ends? In addition to those fundamental problems that you mentioned, do you see some opportunity here to revisit certain aspects of American healthcare? So many opportunities. I don't even know where to begin. And I think all of us went into this having a sense that American healthcare was broken. And so I think that we're all grasping for silver linings every day in all of this. But I think that in terms of looking at the ways healthcare has been disrupted and what we can hold on to that we never would have been able to achieve without this horrible crisis is a real silver lining. So I think that telemedicine, for instance, so many patients, it's really hard for them to get to appointments. They have to travel six hours and they have to pay to park. And I mean, there are all of these obstacles. So I think some aspects of telemedicine are terrific. I think that CMS has eased a lot of reporting requirements, administrative oversight, and for many physicians who are on the ground right now, I think there is a sense that just they're focused, laser-like focus on what matters clinically, and that's liberating, and I think we need to pay attention to that. I think we need to really pay attention to that, because I think prior to COVID, that was sort of what was causing a lot of moral distress among physicians. Now, that's not to say that there's going to be a whole other source of moral distress, which again is, we've talked about a bit, is sort of the emotional burden of having seen so much horrific death. But again, that's something that we're going to have to deal with separately. I think that our whole sort of public health infrastructure is going to need to change. And it seems like it's sort of been the overlooked aspect of medicine. And now it's something that we all realize that we need to pay attention to. So I think that will be a shift in focus. And I think that most fundamentally, there's something about the trust that people have in the profession that for a long time has felt broken to me and I think has been observed, if you take surveys of the public, to really have dropped in the last 30 years. And so I think there is an opportunity now because there's a profound sense of trust between the public and the profession that is renewed to sort of think about what we can do with that just to form alliances and take care of people in ways that we weren't able to do before. And that's going to take a lot of deep thinking, but I don't think we should squander that opportunity. Thank you, Dr. Rosenbaum.